Hey, this is Matt. This is Tony. And this is What Did We Miss? A podcast where we get around to resolving our pop culture blind spots, one episode at a time. Hey. Hey. Do you want to talk about where we are right now? Let's do that. Uh, So, for listeners of the first five episodes, we were doing that in my house. Mm -hmm. Tony would shackle me to his chair in his office. Yeah, it was a real black snake moan situation. Noises. That was the chair I was chained to. Yep, we'd have to shut off the steam radiator so it mm-hmm. didn't uh, whistle. Yeah, so I put up a lot of soundproofing. We're going to add some hissing to this one. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we're not doing that anymore. We Yay. um, we are we're hanging out in downtown Providence mm-hmm. uh, at What Cheer Writers Club, which is um, sort of a, a writers cooperative working space but they have this new podcasting studio we feel very professional we've got uh mics on arms and we've got soundproofing that's attached to the walls there's Mm -hmm. even a uh a blinky on air light yeah like uh like the tanners put in their kitchen so the kids wouldn't bother uncle jesse when he was recording in the basement the only (laughs) thing it's missing is the little frame the little framed cutout of the bunny rabbit wallpaper from uh oh yeah whichever one of those stupid kids bedroom he took over (laughs) <laughs> I don't I don't know. Sorry. I don't I have no memory of that show. Yeah. I remember the episode where they cut Uncle Jesse's hair. I think that's it. And then uh, And he looked so much better. And he lost his powers like Samson. Samson? Isn't that a Bible story? Yes. So with the long hair. Or am I thinking of someone else? I don't Anyway, Rapunzel. We've, we've joked about doing the Bible as an episode of what do we miss? <laughs> <laughs> so Yeah. Um which is indicative of having per, you know Speaking for myself, been brought up Catholic and knowing Same. nothing about the Bible. <laughs> I had confirmation classes and we read that stuff. Yeah, I did too. We didn't. No, we just we were just kind of yelled at and, and yeah, told how terrible we were. Same. Yeah, we were yelled at a lot. What did we miss? A spiritual upbringing. That's what. <laughs> I this this show my, took a weird yeah, turn. I'm sorry. I'm just really grateful that my grandmother doesn't listen to the podcast. True or false? Your grandmother knows what a podcast is. False. Okay. So what's going on? Uh, not a whole lot. Let's see. Um, piggybacking off of last episode, uh, I've been playing Diablo 3, which is a lot of fun. Oh, how's that? It's good? I just said it's a lot of fun. I Listen, wasn't listening to you. <laughs> I know you weren't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting my turn to speak. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, uh, that... Um, we just signed up for HBO for Game of Thrones, so I'll finally get around to some movies I missed. I'm really excited to watch Barry, which I heard uh-huh. good things about. Yeah, I've been watching Barry. Uh, and I'm watching through The Office for the first time. The UK or the US? No, the US one. Oh. I, I, well, I mean, I'd seen it before, but sure. never start to finish. I didn't watch it religiously when it was uh-huh. on. What um, season are you in? Um, We are in... The season, so Pam and Jim are married and Pam oh. is pregnant. Oh, okay. So you're in the slums now. Oh, really? <laughs> I don't I don't like the later seasons. I like, my favorite seasons are probably two and three. And yeah. I think after that, it's inconsistent until Michael Scott leaves and then it's really bad. Yeah, I, I, I'm not really looking, f- I'm, I mean, I'm not looking forward to it as yeah. someone who's enjoyed the show, but I'm, I'm always curious to see how a, a show handles a, uh, significant cast member change like that. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to differentiate the seasons. I've, I've just been like yeah. crushing through it. Sure. Um, but yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. Hmm. 
Um, so what about uh, yourself? <clears throat> I'm interested in what you have to say and what you've been up to, Matt. Uh, so it's been five days since I've played Tetris. Wow. Thank Cold you. turkey or you have like a patch? Um, Meg has been playing Yoshi. Oh, so okay. it's like, but it's good though because I really need to get away from Tetris for a bit. Uh, so I've been trying to do what we do here in this podcast and fill in some blank space for, for, for some artists that I, I really love. Oh. Some of them have died recently. Oh, yeah. bummer. So are you familiar with Scott Walker? No. He's part of the Scott Walker trio or the Walker brothers back in the 60s. And it was kind of like that Baroque style pop, sweeping string arrangements. Uh, and he had like this uh, kind of baritone crooner kind of voice. Uh, and it's pretty good. It's solid kind of um, 60s pop music. And then he kind of struck out on his own and he started getting more sophisticated with his um, compositions and his his lyrics. Uh, and then he progressively got weirder and weirder until uh, the mid-2000s, uh, maybe 2006 or so, when his stuff is just so avant-garde where it's really no structures, uh, no melody that's really discernible, really, really weird stuff. But I think um, uh, there's a lot there to admire and and, and try and wrap your head around. Um, I recommend listening to Scott Walker 4, which is some of the older stuff, a little more songy. Um, And then The Drift, which is one of his later albums, uh, which is really out there, uh, as weird as music could probably get. Uh, and then Larry Cohen uh, died recently. Oh yeah, I I really am only familiar with the stuff. Yeah, which I haven't seen, but I know yeah. he's sort of like a, a highly regarded schlock B movie, yeah. low budget kind of guy. He did a lot of. Uh, he was a writer director. He started off as a writer and started directing his own stuff. And he's pretty much known for doing kind of genre B movie stuff, a lot of monster horror things, thrillers, uh, exploitation fair, but his stuff is always very idiosyncratic and again, kind of deeply personal, but he's also kind of like this guerrilla filmmaker in like the real sense of the word where he would film in New York city without permits. Uh, so they do things like fake a shooting and then people would react on the streets and he'd get footage of it quickly and then they just hightail it out of there. That's insane. It is. Uh, that's from the movie called God Told Me To and it's about these people that are you know, shooting people uh, in, in, in broad daylight in random different locations and they all keep saying when they're caught like, oh, God told me to do this. It's a super strange movie. Nothing quite like it, but it's really cool. I recommend that. The stuff, like you mentioned, is really good. And also, um, It's Alive, which is about this you know, family that have another kid, and it turns out to be kind of like a monster. Oh, kind of like the uh, Treehouse of Horror episode with Hugo, the, yeah. the hunchback twin sort of Bart that they keep in the attic? Yeah. It's essentially a metaphor for being a new parent and the challenges of being a new parent, but also those kind of expectations that are put on you of... of what your relationship is supposed to be with your child. Sure. Um, oh, and then, that's such a great genre, and especially like a horror movie yeah. kind of thing. Like Eraserhead is like oh, yeah. a terrifying look at yeah. <laughs> a first-time parent. His movies are all super low budget. You could always see the seams and the cracks, but that's part of their charm, mm-hmm. I think. 
Um, and then finally, I've been watching a bunch of Agnes Varda movies, and she passed away a couple of weeks ago, uh, as of this recording, at 90. Wow. And she was one of the um, you know original directors uh, as part of the French New Wave. In fact, I think her first movie predates Goddard's first movie. She was kind of key component to that, but often kind of, you know, not talked about because she's a woman. <laughs> so, you know, there's Truffaut and Godard, and, and her husband was um, Jacques Demi, who did Umbrellas of Cherbourg and Young Girls of Rochefort and Donkey Skim. Um, but her movies are pretty terrific, too. And she just has a distinctive way of looking at the world. And later on in life, she would she was making more documentaries than than fiction. Uh, and she would always put herself into the documentary. And usually when you hear about a director that inserts themselves into movies, um, their own movies, it's kind of egotistical. and um, But not her movies, because her movies are always about her trying to understand other people. And she always had this genuine curiosity about the world and about people. I really recommend uh, checking out uh, The Beaches of Agnes, which is her going over her whole career up to that point. And this came out in the early 2000s. And she reflects on all the movies she made, but also reconnects with actors and other people she has worked with. And it's a pretty great starting point um, for her. Uh, but her movies are, there's nothing like them. All three of these creators. Um, but she died at 90 and at the end she was ready to go. She was just like, yeah, I've done what I've needed to do and I'm ready for this, which is kind of counter to the subject of today's podcast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we're talking about Pet Cemetery today. Yeah. The both movies, the book. Yeah. Yeah. The whole the whole deal. Yeah. Book came out in 1983. Yeah. By Stephen King. <laughs> I liked your dramatic pause. By Stephen King. So how 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 familiar are you with like actually familiar with with Stephen King's novels um, um, is he someone you've read a lot of no no I've <laughs> I've read his two big ones I've read it and I've read the stand oh literally his big ones yes so those are like thousand plus pages sure each. when I was younger I read uh, his book silver bullet and what I mostly remember about it it's a werewolf story mm -hmm. but Bernie Wrightson who was a comic book artist did the illustrations for it and oh cool I have vivid memories of those illustrations of like a werewolf claws going through someone's mouth and like ripping the skin off and the transformation and stuff. And and then, like I said, it and the stand are all I had really read. Sure. What about you? Have you read a lot? Not a lot. Um, the first one I read, I don't remember why, but when it came out, my mom got a copy of Dreamcatcher. Mm -hmm. Which was turned into a really terrible movie that we all went and saw just for the um, the the animatrix short that was oh, yeah, in front yeah. of it. Um, but I remember having a great time with it and mm -hmm. really stank. Like I would stay up really late and and read it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and it wasn't particularly terrifying, but it was gross enough that I I was I was just you know I was a teenage boy, so aliens exploding out of these dudes' buttholes was. <laughs> was uh, was uh, was endlessly entertaining. I've read some of his short stories. Um, I think in the the different seasons collection, which yeah. has the body, which mm -hmm. um, Stand by Me was based off of um, the short story that Shawshank was based off of. Um, four of the Dark Tower books. Oh wow! 
um, which are bizarre. Um, and one of them really leans into his fascination with Oz. Oh, cool. And on writing, which is great, which is he wrote that or started to write it before he had that. He was in that accident. He was hit by a car. Maybe, gosh, more than 10 years ago now, but he almost died. It was this traumatic just sort of uh, event, obviously, as as it would be. Um, so on writing is uh, superficially his take on the craft of writing. But more than that, it, it sort of plays as part memoir going through his life and his fascination with stories, especially his fascination with being scared and uh, sort of focuses on these flashpoints where he's introduced to uh, a certain type of storytelling or or practicing a certain kind of storytelling as a young developing writer and then the car accident happens and then and then it gets into more of the technical stuff and then sort of how he comes back to writing and how it, it sort of helps him through this trauma it's fascinating and what I really have come to admire about Stephen King from what I've read especially in light of reading on writing is how totally unpretentious he is he's just he's a guy from Maine who writes scary stories and he doesn't allow that to limit himself. You know, he doesn't sort of, I don't ever get the impression that he's like, Oh, I'm just a, I'm just like a, a genre, like cheap paperback kind of guy. But he, he really seems to, to love that. Like he is Stephen King and he, he, he knows who he is and he knows what he does and does well. And it's just, it, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. It seems like for the most part that, what he's great at is taking these really mundane everyday ideas i think this is a common knowledge with him uh what makes him great is he takes these very specific things um to small town life and and he makes them scary yeah including pet cemetery which uh was inspired by a couple of events one was you know his child running out towards a truck and uh he had to save them but another one was his daughter. She had a cat that had passed away. And she couldn't really understand why this cat had died. This is like his first introduction to teaching his child about death. You know, she went up to him and she said, he was my cat. Let God have his own cat. Schmucky was my cat. Such anger, I think, is the sanest first response to grief that a thinking, feeling human being can have. And I've always loved her for that defiant cry. Let God have his own cat. The, the, the forward to... Pet Cemetery is really great for little gems like that. Yeah, um, and he kind of works that into the story too. Yeah, Ellie, the the daughter, mm -hmm. more or less gives the same uh, rant to Lewis, yeah. who is the the protagonist of the story. When yeah. when uh, does is no, I think it's that's at the prospect of her cat dying. So, had you seen the original movie? No, I I hadn't. My only sort of understanding, I I I knew the the one scene when the reanimated toddler slices the old man's Achilles tendon. Yeah. I remember seeing it on some, I don't know, I remember uh, a certain channel used to do like a, a top 100 scariest movie moments every Halloween. Yeah. That was always on there. So I, I knew that beat and spent the whole time watching the movie for this episode in wild anticipation of it. Is there a reason why you put off reading Pet Cemetery, or is it just one of those things where it's just like, just never got around to it? No, I think to kind of uh, reference the point I was making earlier about Stephen King, I think by the time I was old enough and aware of who he was, he was just such a, you know, a Stephen King book was almost like a, a trope unto itself, and I, I just kind of dismissed it. So yeah. I, re I, just re I really put off 
reading any of his stuff for a long time, really until, uh, I mean, Dreamcatcher aside, those short stories I mentioned, um, I read as part of an assignment in college in a, a class about film adaptations. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just I just had put it off, and there's really no reason. Um, and kind of the same for the movie. I feel like I saw the I saw the high point yeah. in that clip show, and didn't I, really have any desire to go back to it. I think when I was younger, I kind of had because I've I'm a big horror movie fan, and I think when I was younger, I stupidly was just like I don't want to see a movie about killer cats that come back from the dead. Like I almost took it too literally, uh, which is really silly. And then finally watching, cause I had watched the movie uh, a few years back and kind of discovering that, Oh, that's not really what this story is about. It's about dealing with death. It's about grief. And it's really the cat is the kind of the, the way into it. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, at this point we've seen uh, the original movie and the, the new movie. Yeah. Uh, neither of them really do a good job getting to what's truly terrifying about the book. Yeah, I think what's interesting is, you know, the original movie is pretty close. Um, it stays pretty close to the, the spirit of the book. Yeah, I mean, he wrote the screenplay for yeah, it. Yeah, and it's the first movie that he ever adapted from his own work. And uh, it's definitely victim of staying too close to the source material. Yeah, in some instances, yeah. And then the new one, I think... It's not that it deviates, it's that it deviates in a winking way. The The directors of the new movie, and that's uh, Dennis Widmeyer and Kevin Kolsch, they refer to their movie as a re-adaptation. And I think that in and of itself is a problem. It's a combination of remake and adaptation. And So, so they're basically adapting the movie yes, in the book. And a lot of the problems of the new movie are basically like, here's a, something you're familiar with from the book and the original movie. And we're going to do this now. That's a little different, but it's almost like a winking kind of, you know, change. They're all arbitrary changes. Nothing really has any weight or impact. To make a, a kind of screwball comparison, it feels like Star Trek Into Darkness made such an effort to be like, I, we're not remaking Wrath of Khan, and then they just did a really shitty job remaking Wrath of Khan. I thought of that same exact analogy this morning, uh, especially that moment in Star Trek Into Darkness when he reveals himself to be Khan, and it's only for people that are aware of Star Trek II. That doesn't work as a storytelling device. Right, or, you know, instead of uh, at the end, doesn't Kirk die or something? And then, like, yeah. they flip it, and yeah. Spock's the one who yells Khan. Yeah. There are tons of instances like that in... Uh, so that quote you you were talking about earlier from Stephen King's daughter about yeah. her cat dying and her saying, God can take his own cat. In the book, the character Ellie hits that same beat, same in the original movie. In the remake, that line comes much later after Lewis brings his kid back and, and like in defiance, he's, you know, God can take his own kid. And it's just <laughs> like, they're like, remember? Yeah. Because like, they said it before, but we're, we're mixing it up. It's all kind of like, ain't I a stinker? Like, look what we did. You can see what we did. We're showing you the evidence kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's kind of fan service-y and uh, it really... It was a really frustrating watch for me, especially the back half. But before we really get into the specifics of why the we don't think the movies work and why the book does work, let's we can kind of go through the book piece by piece, at least the important stuff, and talk about why it works in the book and why it doesn't work in the adaptations. So essentially, Pet Cemetery is about this family, the Creeds. Uh, they're moving to this small town in Maine, not Derry this time around. It's Ludlow, right? Right. 
I think they reference Derry. Yeah, though. Derry gets mentioned a few times. And uh, for those who aren't familiar, Derry is a popular town that Stephen King has used throughout quite a few of his books. Oh uh, yeah. Um, so they're they're new to town. The father, uh, Lewis, is uh, becoming a doctor in a local university. Right. Uh, and he relocated the whole family. They're looking forward to small town life, and they move across from this older man named Judd, uh, and he's kind of like... He, he's like the folksy, like typical greatest generation Manor. He's the character that's kind of responsible for a lot of the exposition in the book. Yeah. Oh, he's definitely the um, the wise old sage character. Yeah. Played by um, Fred Quinn. A.K.A. Played. Herman Munster. Yep. In um, the original movie. And played by... Um, John Lithgow. John Lithgow. A.K.A. Dick Solomon. <laughs> Two of... Two of my favorite sitcom goofballs. <laughs> I, I don't remember Third Rock from the Sun. Oh, Third Rock is really good. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Third Rock's a lot of fun. I think I watched it in the beginning, but uh, I don't remember anything about it. The premise of it being about four aliens is just a cover for it to be a show about four incredibly horny people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Watching it back not too long ago, I couldn't believe... That Third Rock from the Sun was mandatory Pachiti family viewing, but I wasn't allowed to watch The Simpsons at the same time because <laughs> it's all about them all trying to get laid. With each other. No. <laughs> that would have been good. No, it's just, yeah, yeah. they are just, yeah. Uh, yeah. But we're getting sidetracked. Anyway, anyway back to the story. Um, so they move in this town. They meet Judd, and Judd shows them the Pet Cemetery. Pet Cemetery happens to be this kind of, relic of the town where kids would bring their animals adorable misspellings on markers they would bring kermit in a garbage truck uh, and bury him out there um and that's why the book is uh cemetery is spelled incorrectly because you know that's how the the kids wrote it Mm -hmm. you know what's funny is that in the process of preparing this episode and going back and forth talking about pet cemetery my phone now autocorrects to the improper way of spelling Cemetery. Oh, yeah, I love how dumb our phones make us. <laughs> um, my phone capitalizes if the words the and one are paired. Uh, it capitalizes both because I've texted about the Matrix a lot. <laughs> As you should. <laughs> um, so it's pretty different um, in the new movie where Judd doesn't take the family to see the pet cemetery. Ellie kind of, the young daughter... Um, stumbles upon the cemetery on her own and Judd just happens to find her there. Sure, yeah. There, So there are uh, two children. We should just establish mm-hmm. their names now because they're very important for different reasons. Ellie is the, you know, she ranges in age from like six to nine or so, depending mm-hmm. on which version we're talking about. And then there's Gage, who is the toddler, who's always like two, three years old. And then the mom, too, is is Rachel. So that's the big difference there. Uh, in the original movie, it's pretty much how it is in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lewis goes back to work, and one of the first major deaths and important portent for the the rest of the novel is um, Victor Pascal. Right. So uh, Lewis is the the head physician at uh, a university, and this is day one of the new semester, and this kid gets brought in on a blanket with his brains hanging out. He's been hit by a car. There's He's not going to make it. He's just, his body's been brutalized. And then Lewis starts kind of seeing him pop up. He has these kind of visions of him all over the place, and he sort of gives him a warning mm-hmm. about dire things that are to come. Uh, and that's pretty 
pretty much how it happens in all three versions. The other ominous portent is that the road in front of the family's house is frequented by these big gas trucks. And they always just come zooming by just these huge hulking pieces of steel going probably way too fast. And you know something terrible is going to happen because they lay it on real thick. Even in the book. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Judd describes, uh, he says something like uh, Rhodes claimed a lot of pets or something like something like that. Just, you know, yeah. advises that they get their cat fixed so that it, it loses its urge to, to wander outside. It's really weird how the book fixates on, or Lewis in the book fixates on getting their cat church fixed. It's almost like it's connected to his own sort of his masculinity yeah and how he moved and now it's kind of connected like it well yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on in the book that does and does not get addressed in the films to various degrees his in-laws hate him his father-in-law in in the book offered to pay him off uh, by paying for his medical school to break off his relationship with rachel so there is sort of this idea of being emasculated kind of hanging over him you know he nothing he does is good enough for his his wife's family he does sort of uh project a lot of that onto the cat do you think that he's an asshole who lewis yeah or do you think it's that clear cut i don't know i don't know that he's an asshole he's Uh, definitely got you know there's definitely some pride that might be getting in the way of some better judgment earlier on before well things really take a turn what do you why do you think he's an asshole well I can't decide how I feel about the book's depiction of Rachel. Because I think there are things earlier on about her being this... She's almost like a subservient kind of wife that pleasures him. Uh, and it some of it feels off. And I can't tell if it's purposeful because he is... Because he's a kind of a... Sort of a bad guy. Uh, I don't know that he's a bad guy, but I definitely think that she is just... Uh, no, subservient is absolutely right. I mean, when do you think she's underwritten? Uh, certainly in the beginning. I mean, definitely in the both movies, right? But I mean, like in the book, when um, when that student dies, she welcomes him home in like her sexiest th- see-through underwear, yeah, it's, it's and gross. then like and then jerks him off in a bathtub. Yeah, it's really weird. It's it's yeah. it's super weird. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm you know I'm glad I, I do think uh, that beat gets handled a little better. In, in the, the movies? In the movies. There are a few moments like that where there are a couple of sex scenes with Rachel and they're always kind of about her making sure that he's okay. And then later on, it was like kind of like, he's like a stud, like, yeah, yeah, I just had sex with my wife. And I don't know if that's kind of indicative of the time and all that. Not that I'm I'm trying to say it's okay, but where he was. And yeah, yeah. He did say that this is the only book that scared him that he wrote, mm-hmm. like scared him the book itself and what it revealed about himself. Yeah, he, well, he didn't want to publish it and only yeah. did to get out of a, a shitty contract with a, a another publisher. But he now says that he thinks it's one of his best. I think at the time it was just tough, and I think a lot of that has to do with, and we'll, I think we'll get into this a lot more later, but I do think that this parallels a lot of what he was going through at the time with his addiction. This is about a character that continually makes bad decisions, knows he's making bad decisions and can't help himself. And it has such a dark ending that feels inevitable. And you can't help but see that maybe this is how he was feeling about himself at the time. Sure, but I mean... 
And that's why I'm curious about the asshole thing, because that could be something that he put in there because mm-hmm. he felt about himself at the time. I hadn't really considered it in terms of his addiction, which sure. I'm aware of. That I was, mean, it's this cert- is like the height of his addiction, too. Right. But I mean, it's also very much a story of a young father who loses a child. King was a young father at the time who uh, had a had a brush with a, a similar incident where yeah. his his young his toddler was running towards that road, which inspired the road the creeds live on. In real life, King was able to stop his kid. In the book, Lewis doesn't get there in time. Yeah, and hundreds of pages are dedicated to this sort of spiraling grief and this knowledge that there is a way to bring his kid back, compounded by the knowledge that it's not a good idea. But what do you do? Like, at what point does that level of loss override any sense of sound judgment you may have had? And I, I so like the drug thing never really dawned on me. I, there is a quote from Judd in the book, and I think this speaks to the drug metaphor a little. And I don't think it's over, and I think that's one thing that appeals to me about the book, but I do think, you know, write what you know kind of thing. But Judd says at one point, and this is right after, this is kind of talking about the pet cemetery in general and knowing what it's capable of and that kind of pull that the cemetery has of bringing things back to life. And Judd says, you do it because it gets hold of you. You do it because that burial place is a secret place and you want to share the secret. You make up reasons. They seem like good reasons. Mostly you do it because you want to or because you have to. Yeah, no, it's a fix. Yeah, uh, totally. So before all the craziness of the back half comes, I guess we'll talk about the next death besides um, Pascal, and that's uh, Church, their cat. The original movie is pretty close to how it happens in the book. And the family goes away for Thanksgiving to visit Rachel's parents, everyone except for Lewis, who has to stay back because of the hospital. It's not necessarily because of negligence, but, you know, Church gets out and gets hit by one of those trucks. Yeah, there's no negligence at all. It's one of the last innocent deaths (laughs) in in the book, really. Um, It's such a, you know, just the fact of of having an outdoor animal on a living on a busy road. And it's just, you know, it's a it's a risk and. And, and because Ellie was very specifically talking about, I can't lose church because she's so close to him, He's he panics. One interesting detail about the book that the movies miss is that even though he gets hit by a truck, in the book he says that the cat looks fine. Like the body looks fine. It doesn't look like it got hit by a truck, which I thought was a curious detail. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of that in the book. A lot of subtleties about maybe the paranormal aspects aren't so paranormal. And that's what I really liked about the book. There's a mundanity to everything that happens, to the deaths. They feel natural. And maybe this was projection on my part of what I was hoping to get out of the book or what I wanted the book to be. But I thought that there was, not that this is all a dream, but there was an element of projection on Lewis's part that he saw what he needed to see in order to do what he needed to do. Uh, to deal with grief or to help his daughter. I'll be honest, I was a little let down as it got more supernatural as it went along. Yeah, I think by the final act of the book, there's there's a few too many supernatural plates spinning. Especially with references to the Wendigo, which is like the Indian, uh, like a demon, right? It's a, it's a, um, a monster from Native American lore. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, That's the other thing too. The book and the original movie make reference to this, the pet cemetery being, uh, you know, like a Native American kind of thing. And I think wisely, the new movie has kind of decided to forego that because that's become like a horror trope. Right. I mean, well, it's kind of a lazy horror trope because it's just like. It otherizes uh, Native Americans in the sense of like, oh, this weird thing that they did. Yeah, and I was sort of expecting that going into it, but I, I did, you know, it didn't feel as tropey as what was it? Was Poltergeist? Was their house built on yeah. a mm-hmm. a Native burial ground? It's not ground? exploitative. No, and, and you get the the sense that you know, and Judd kind of speaks to this as whatever malignant power is in that place that had been there a long time and. The natives knew about it because they were there first and moved on. There's some debate in the book about claim and ownership of the land, and it seems like nobody particularly wants it. And it's sort of, as they're told, the ground is sour, and it yeah. seems to have always been that way. So, but in the new movie, they own the land that the pet cemeteries on. Yeah, that's true. Which is strange. Uh, when we got home, Meg was just like, "There's no way they wouldn't know that. They'd have to disclose that information," <laughs> which is silly, but it's but it's an interesting observation. The idea of buying almost 50 acres of property and not knowing what's on it—I mean, yeah. not knowing every inch—but that's a that's a big piece. You got to yeah. assume that uh, you know you should know the landmarks. The big thing that the first movie and the book, or one thing that I think is important, is that he lies to his family about Church dying. Whereas in the new movie, they're all home when Church dies, and even Rachel is aware that Church dies, and he still goes out to bury it. He knows about the pet cemetery in the original movie in the book, and he decides to go bury Church in the pet cemetery, but Judd helps him along and takes him to this place beyond this pet cemetery, which is what brings it back to life. In the new movie, Judd is the one that instigates it. So again, it's like this subtle variation that doesn't necessarily change anything. Except for the lie. And I think the lie that he tells his family that church is okay. And I think that's kind of important. The original movie in the book, he just doesn't tell them anything happened. In the remake, they tell Ellie that the cat ran away. But Rachel is aware that the cat died. Right, right. But the whole issue with talking openly about death as a natural part of life comes from uh, Rachel's backstory, which is... She had uh, an older sister uh, who, when she was younger, had spinal meningitis, and she was terrified because of the way the the disease physically changed her sister and her being so young that she couldn't really, she wasn't really equipped to handle what was happening. And then on a day that her parents were out and left her to bring her sister her meals, she died. In the book, in the first film, it was just an accident. Her her sister choked on something. There was nothing Rachel could do about it. She was too young to do anything about it. But she blames herself. She blames herself. And I think that's important because a lot of any death that's close to you, you question, like, what could I have done? And, but beyond, beyond what could she have done, she also feels awful because as a child, she was relieved. This nightmare that she felt stuck in because she couldn't understand, because she was powerless to do anything about it, suddenly that was over. And she felt relief in that, which is not an unfair thing to to feel. But again, as a child being ill-equipped to handle what was happening in the first place, never mind the sense of relief over this tragedy, and not sense of relief, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, as an adult, that relief comes from a place of uh, she's not suffering anymore. It's over you know, however you want to sort of deal with that. As a kid, 
that must be like such a relief. Her her thinking was this monster doesn't live in my house anymore. And that's what she sort of beat herself up over too. Unfortunately, the new movie kind of makes her almost... I mean, the new movie makes her a monster completely. Like, she looks like a monster in the new movie. They they film it like she's this creature. And again, it's coming from Rachel's perspective, but it feels a little too yeah, manipulative. But the, the first movie doesn't do it any favors either. It's like the a... The first one's weirder. I think the difference is, is that in the first scene with her, she's there's only like two shots of, of Zelda, her sister, and it's played by a man in the original. Yeah, and it's super fucking goofy. It's weird, yeah. Yeah, he looks like... It's like deadite makeup from Evil Dead, almost. Yeah, it's so... kind of. The new one, though, I think they ramp it up even more. Uh, well, they drop her down a dumbwaiter for yeah, no reason. and almost make it... Because like, Rachel did something with the dumbwaiter, right? So in the in the new movie, they have a dumbwaiter they're not supposed to use, and she was supposed to stay home to, to give Zelda her lunch. So she was afraid to go up there her, herself, so she put it in the dumbwaiter and sent it up. And then the dumbwaiter comes crashing down with the food in it. And Zelda. <laughs> it, well, but like, but it waits a beat. And then Zelda falls on top of yeah. it. Yeah. And it's just. It's bad. Yeah. They just used her for jump scares, which felt really cheap and, and yeah. kind of took any of the, the resonance out of Rachel's yeah. story. Because what's interesting about Rachel's story is it obviously informs her perception of death. Right. And she gets into some arguments with Lewis before Church dies, first half of the book, about talking to Ellie about death and afterlife and all these things. Right. And she doesn't think that they should talk to Ellie about death just yet. And he's very matter of fact. He's like, no. She argues that it's not a natural part of life. Because of dealing with Zelda. And I think the new movie strips that a bit. Zelda's death in the new movie is just really weird. Right. Yeah. It's just yeah. played for scares. Judd's wife. Norma passes away too, and the both movies eliminate Norma altogether, which is a shame because um, it's one of many things that the movies kind of jettison in their their haste to get from one gross out to the next. Yeah, Judd and his wife really welcome the creeds in quickly, establish a sort of um, family of friends kind of uh, scenario. I mean, in the book, uh, Lewis considers Judd suddenly to be his best friend and. Uh, early on, kind of makes some comment on how strange it is to find himself being best friends with uh, an 80-year-old man, but they bond very quickly. and They go drinking quite a few times. Yeah, Judd, well, has, he, he gives Lewis a standing invitation to come over to his house at, after sundown to, to have a couple of beers on the porch. I mean, that's a lot of the first half of the book is them yeah. just kind of palling around. And the new movie frames it as in Judd gets his way into the family by befriending Ellie more than, than Lewis, uh, which is, again, another sort of sideways choice. I think it kind of robs it a little bit because Judd is the one that is helping Lewis, at least to bury Church. And it kind of takes away from their relationship a bit. Yeah, it diminishes the, the Lewis-Judd relationship. I think what the movie was trying to do with the Ellie and Judd connection is to maybe mislead audiences who haven't read or seen the other movie into thinking that Judd's doing this out of the goodness of his heart because he he has a fondness. Um, and he even says in the movie, like, your daughter touched my heart in a way that no one has in a long time. And that could be a very sweet thing. You know, He they, in the movie, he doesn't seem to have any family. Another thing, too, is in the book and the movie, and we'll fill in some gaps here in a minute, but uh, the first person that the reanimated child comes for is Judd. Yeah. And I think, I think the new movie's trying to connect those dots again without 
appreciating what made the other dots worth connecting in the first place. And I think the first movie, unfortunately, is just trying to simplify things. They eliminate Judd's wife in the first movie, it feels, because they don't want him grieving independently right. of having to grieve for the creeds. Yeah, but then they take another sort of you know third-tier character from the book and, and have her kill herself just to have a funeral to bring Ellie to. Yeah, yeah. That feels like, again, like I see why they made that choice. It's to step in in place of Judd's wife because that informs a lot of Ellie's perception of death in the book. So it's like, again, like we don't want to waste time with Judd grieving, but it just feels kind of like it just kind of hangs there. I think that's a problem with the first movie in general is that it's just a sort of like a shallow version of the book. So I know I think we have differing opinions here, but I yeah. I really hated the first movie. Sure. And I really hated the second one. I think the first one uh, has some filmmaking chops. And I think if you replace the lead actor. Yeah, that dude sucks. He's really bad. He's just a black hole. Just like a wet noodle yeah. of a presence. Like he barely reacts to things. And then when eventually he needs to react to things, it's just, it's so big. It's so big. And it's just strange because it's so, he's so flat for the rest of the movie. Right. But I do think that if you had cast their original choice, which is Bruce Campbell, that that movie would be. Wait, what? Yeah. No. Yeah. He was their original choice to play Lewis. And I think that could have been a great movie. What? Because what the movie. What was he doing? I'm not really sure. Oh, man. The original movie toes the line of camp. And I think there are instances where if it leaned a little more into that, it could be just a straight up B movie gore kind of thing. Right. Because it has some filmmaking chops. One thing we, have, we haven't gotten to yet, and we'll talk about it. I guess we'll talk about it now. The most major death of the whole book is um, their son, Gage. You know, he's a little kid. He kind of learns how to walk from the beginning of the book. And there's a greater passage of time in the book, too. I think that's helpful because it shows them settling into being in their new town. The first movie obviously handles this death fairly close to the book uh, with a few minor changes. The new movie fakes you out to make it seem like it's going to be like the original. And then it kills the different kid kills Ellie. It's so over the top, including the fact that they decide to kill Ellie off on her birthday when all of her friends and family are there. It's so exploitative and the scene itself is so comically executed. And I was trying not to laugh. Yeah, it's a really it's a really bad green screen when the truck's coming at her. And there's like a CGI truck that flips. It looks like something out of Con Air or something. Compared to the original movie, which is just four shots. And it's actually pretty elegant in how it's all cut together. It's just like a shot of the truck, a shot of the family, a shot of Gage, and then a shot of the bloody shoe. And it's pretty pretty great up until the next shot, which is Lewis kind of on his knees going no to the sky. Yeah. cut that little thing out I think that's a nice little sequence 
The book, though, handles it so beautifully. Oh, yeah. Because it treats it almost as if this, like death in general, like an inevitability, it lets you know that Gage dies before it explains how Gage dies. I think it's a really one of the smartest choices that the book makes because it doesn't it doesn't rub your face in it. Right. Which knowing King's reputation, I I really wasn't looking forward to Gage dying because they telegraph it, like you said, pretty early on. And I was so preemptively uncomfortable with how that was going to play out. But you're right. There's like a chapter break where there's a sentence to the effect of like acknowledges that the kid died. And then we're suddenly in the funeral and it's happened and the incident is never revisited in any grisly or uh, exploitative way. The fact that a lot of the the first sort of uh, images of the accident, you're seeing Lewis sort of replay it the way it almost went or how it could have gone and how close he came to grabbing the jacket. And it's just so... It's, it's, They're just it's, playing in the it, front yard. Yeah, and it's so... But it, he's like, it's about his memory of it. Right, and it's so... It's gut-wrenching in a way that's not... I was expecting a visceral, physical... I was expecting the carnage. Violence. But the, the heart, yeah, the heartbreak was unexpected and, I mean, worse in a way that made it more effective. A better uh, storytelling device than just, you know, yeah. talking about what happened explicitly. Yeah, I'm not sure how the movies could handle it in that same exact way. Um, I'm sure there's a way to film it like that. The original movie puts Judd at the scene too, and it combines a couple of scenes because mm-hmm. in the book, Lewis is remembering his this last great moment he had with Gage where it's just the two of them and they're flying a kite. And the movie combines the kite flying uh, and the family hanging out together. And he runs out into the road and gets hit by that truck. Obviously, after that point, it's all about their grief uh, and how both of them are handling it. And what I think which is really interesting about the book is there's a lot of talk about Ellie's not ready for this. Rachel can't handle grief. But in the back half, it's pretty much Lewis is the one that can't handle it at all. Because he's the one that makes starts making the bad choices. He's the one that decides to bury Gage in the pet cemetery because he wants him to come back. And, you know, and I I can see a version of the new movie where Ellie being the one who dies and coming back works because watching the the original movie, there's a lot of narrative pressure put on a very young child actor. Mm -hmm. And none of those scenes work because it's a fucking three year old kid. Are you talking about Ellie or Gage? No, Gage. You know, it's a it's a it's a three year old kid clearly repeating the lines that someone's talking at him off camera. And it just. Are you talking about when he comes back or or uh, before he anything, comes back? Anything. Any anytime yeah. Gage is like I, speaking, it's just I actually like when he comes back. I think it's funny. <laughs> yeah, but it's not supposed to be. I think there are moments that are creepy funny. Yeah. yeah. Especially when he's just like there's a there's that kind of scene where he's walking away and he's saying, Not fair, not fair. And then there's a shot of him where he falls and it's so natural. It seems like Yeah, no, it was they're like they they had the camera running. Yeah. And I think that's such a great little moment. It's so weird. I don't know. I think it has more personality. I don't think the original movie works. Again, I think that core performance is just... I think everybody's performance in the original movie, besides Fred Gwynn, does not work. Which is a shame, because Denise Crosby is a goddamn delight in Star Trek. <laughs> she is, but I don't know if she just, just doesn't have much to do in it. or or A lot of it is that kind of like big horror performance of just 
screaming and reacting to things. Yeah. It's all big. And she doesn't get a lot of the little moments in the book that I get, which isn't necessarily her fault. We talked about Rachel being underwritten in the book. Stephen King adapted the first movie for the screen. He already took, I mean, he stripped that thing down and, and rebuilt it for speed. I mean, yeah. there, what little there was of Rachel in the first place was thrown out the window and like fucking forget the back half where she's like in a buddy road movie with a ghost. Yeah. Although I think there's a couple of shots in that that are pretty terrific. And one in particular is when she, well, so, so we should probably give a little detail, but she starts seeing Victor Pascal mm-hmm. uh, and he's, he's dead. This is in the original movie and in the book. She's on a flight in the new movie and there's this great shot. It's like deep focus. She's on the plane. She's in the foreground on the right side and he's in the background on the left side and he's just kind of smiling. Mm -hmm. And everything is in focus and it's just a great little beat to the end of a scene. Uh, And again, I think that's what just separates the two is there's a little more personality in the filmmaking in the original one. A couple of little tweaks here and there and I think you could have a solid genre movie. Whereas... The new one, Victor Pascal, is just, he's not as interesting. No. Well, I mean, the problem with the whole Pascal character, and you'd mentioned the Wendigo earlier, yeah. is that there becomes this greater force at play in the book that there is this ancient evil that is uh, drawing Lewis and his family to the, uh, the pet cemetery. And Pascal represents some force that's trying to help them avoid it in the first movie just plays completely fucking hokey. I think some of that's purposeful though. I really do because there are moments that feel like it's playing for sort of broad comedy. I picked up on the intent. I don't think it stuck the landing. Sure. Some of it, like I said, I think there are a couple of those shots with him that are fun. She hitchhikes and she gets out and there's a shot of Victor in the truck that I think is pretty cool too. Mm -hmm. And again, a lot of that's just nice compositions, nice little beats where it just kind of allows it an extra moment where they don't necessarily say anything. And again, coming back to not really over-relying on the actors, more on the cutting and the framing. A lot of it is uh, kind of broad and sticky. We haven't talked about church a whole lot. Uh, so you you dismissed Pet Cemetery as being a you know monster cat movie. And, yeah. But it's uh, he's so much more sinister in the book just in how weird he is. He comes back and he doesn't walk right and he smells gross, and he's always sticky, and Ellie loved him before, but now doesn't want him in her room, mm-hmm. and he's just this this just fucked up little harbinger of the terrible things that are about to happen. He's just like bumping into walls. He's he's bringing back all this dead stuff. And again, it, like the, the chunk of the book with Zombie Baby is very small, and so much of it is church just kind of like slinking around as this constant reminder of this fucked up thing Lewis did and just a potential indication of whatever you're thinking you're going to do to fix your family. Like if this is what happened to the cat, what do you think is going to happen to your kid? I think too, the movies, both movies double down on the cat being evil with the capital E, mm-hmm. like it wants to attack things. And the mo- the book doesn't really do that. He's just kind of there in a nuisance. And again, like you said, he's pretty gross and off. Like, Everyone says, like, there's something weird about church. No one says, like, church scares me now. Yeah. But in the movies, it's basically like, this cat is scary. Like, that's not a cat you want to keep in your house with your two little kids. And the scary moments with church in the book are so much better. Like, when Lewis wakes up on the couch and church is just sitting on his chest. Yeah. Or, like, when they can't figure out how he keeps getting back into the house. And it turns out to be a very 
a very plausible explanation. There's like a busted window, but yeah. he knows what he did. And he's like, did that thing walk through the door like that ghost did? Again, I want to want to reiterate that I really like the book. Mm-hmm. But I do think that that stuff disappointed me a little about the, the back half when things get more supernatural. Because there's so many little details in the book, like you just said, about how there are logical explanation for things. Judd, he buried his pet when he was a little kid and it came back. And again, you're hearing a story from an 80-year-old man, so it could be apocryphal. And he tells a story about someone that was in the war that came home and had died and they buried him and brought him back. But that could also be you know, a yeah. POW that ends up coming home and yeah, is messed up from the war. Exactly. There's all these little details. And you know, when Church gets hit by the truck, there's he goes out of his way to say that he looks fine. Like he looks physically fine, but he was dead. There's lots of little things explaining and then it just doubles down on the supernatural stuff. And I the inevitability of things, although that ties into with what he's talking about with death and the, you know, everyone is gonna die and we're all gonna have to deal with that at some point. I didn't like how it was all of these signs pointing like this is gonna happen to your family kind of thing with the Wendigo and with Victor Pascal and stuff. I was hoping for a little more subtlety and I know that's not the type of writer that Stephen King is. And I don't mean that in a, in a negative way either. It's just maybe the type of stories that I, interest me. I try not to project too much onto it of being like, this is what I need you to be story because that's my favorite type of story. These themes about grief and, and, and death and the acceptance of death and the ambiguity behind that, that's some of my favorite type of stories. You know, when Gage comes back in the book and he's suddenly spouting off at Judd about all the, the horrible ways his wife had debased herself with everybody else in town. and Yeah. Yeah, it's suddenly very, it feels very exorcist in that way. But the uh, the less simple explanation of demon possession, you have to get into what the Wendigo was. <laughs> One thing I do think that neither movie did justice to was how him digging up Gage in the first place felt like a... Like a self-contained heist in the book, and yeah, just like the, it's the great the planning, and like just the paranoia, and just the obstacles he had to. In the movie, he just like he hops a waist-high fence and digs up a, a body, and nobody seems to notice. Both movies condense that into like a good like two to five minutes at at most. Oh, it's a novella. Yeah, originally in the book, that's like a good chunk of the back half. And Gage doesn't really die till like the last third of the book and then from that point on it's about his plan and you could see think of a version of that and film which would be great that kind of it's almost like a a procedural it's something like the filmmaking and breaking bad where it slows down and it shows you this process i think could be an amazing way of filming this scene especially like it gets into his head and he talks about how like well if gage comes back this way if he comes back wrong i know how to eliminate him and he goes through every kind of logical explanation that he comes up with about how he's going to do this, why he's going to do this, why he should do this. Or even or even the arrangements he makes for the funeral. And yeah. then, you know, he agrees to certain things and Judd helps with the, the arrangements. And Judd's kind of pointing out, oh, the, the type of burial you're you're signing up for isn't isn't really as permanent as it could be. Yeah. You're not. 
thinking of doing anything insane, are you? He's very suspicious of Super him. suspicious. But again, they're, they're sort of in on this, this perverse secret. And he, Judd's very aware of the, the appeal that the power of that place has. And, you know, I think um, I, I never read this book, but the adaptation of Stephen King's, um, what was it, 1122, 63? I wonder if this story would have been better served in that type of format. Like as a, a limited miniseries. miniseries. Yeah, maybe. You know, I, uh, just give give the characters time to do what was so interesting in the book. Because, like I said, the movies were really built for speed. And they were so excited to get to the next gross-out gag. It just, there's nothing, who gives a shit? There's no reason to, to care about why any of it's happening. Because you're just like, oh, I can't wait for the next fucked up thing to happen. It's interesting you say that because I know in the original version, which we haven't mentioned, but it's, it's directed by Mary Lambert. And originally their ending for the 1989 movie was a lot more understated. And once they saw how it was playing, the producers and everyone were like, no, we need to amp up the gore. We need that ending. So they doubled down on that and the ending show a little more blood. Well, let's talk about that, that ending, that last beat, because they're... The ending of all three are very different. So yeah. Gage comes back in the book, kills Judd. So let's backtrack a bit. Right at the end of the funeral, uh, Lewis is like, "You need. why don't you go away? I got some things to tidy up here. And Rachel is suspect of him, but she's like, okay, we'll go and, and spend time with my parents. So she takes Ellie and they go to her parents' house. And this is when he begins the process of digging up Gage and putting him in a pet cemetery. But then Ellie starts getting premonitions and dreams about Victor Pascal. Yeah, she starts having he, he she starts got, visiting her in nightmares. You think she's got the shinning? <laughs> Sorry, that was a Simpsons reference. <laughs> she's the shining. Yep. Um, so anyway, um, she starts seeing Victor Pascal in her dreams and thinking something bad's gonna happen. Rachel instinctively thinks that Lewis might commit suicide. She's worried about him and she tries to call back. So she's on the way home in order to see what's going up. So she gets a plane ticket and eventually doesn't make a flight and then has to rent a car and drive. And that breaks down because the Wendigo doesn't want her to come home. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So that leads us up to where Gage comes back. Gage comes back, goes after Judd first. Lewis has this whole plan because he wakes up and, and sees little adorable footprints have come through the house and taken his scalpel out of his medicine bag. So he arms himself with a bunch of high-powered sedatives to kill Church and Gage again. He does that. Yeah, he which just... is pretty much the first movie does that too. Mm -hmm. The same kind of outcome. Yeah, the house burns down. Well, he burns the house down. He burns the house down because Gage also kills Rachel. Yeah, Rachel shows up and runs over to Judd's house because Lewis wasn't back yet, right? No, because I thought she was, she was just going to go to... The plan was for her to go to Judd first. Because in the book, Judd is trying to stay up because Lewis is gone. Yeah. And he's keeping watch. He's waiting for Lewis to come home. To come home with the body because he knows where he is and he knows what he's doing. Yeah. And then I think the, the first movie happens the same way. Yeah. He falls asleep. The Wendigo makes him go to sleep. Gage kills Judd. Mm -hmm. Then Rachel shows up, sees Judd is dead. He kills Rachel. And then Lewis goes over and sees that Rachel is dead and Judd is dead. And then he kills Gage with the um, the syringe. And then he burns the house down. Yeah. And in both cases, he has learned no lesson <laughs> and carries Rachel's body 
out to the burial ground. This time will be different because he's ta- she just died. This is what he convinces himself. This time will be fine. Yeah, it's a real monkey's paw kind of thing. Yeah. And in the book, he um, this character who's essentially, he's barely in the book, but he's someone that worked at the, the hospital. He kind of shows up. It's kind of from his perspective, this chapter. And he finds Lewis kind of just out to lunch, carrying Rachel towards the pet cemetery, trying to figure out what's going on. And he realizes something is really wrong. They kind of eliminate that in, in both movies. Right. Oh, that, that character, too, was, was following him. There is a barrier between the pet cemetery and the place where the dead come back. And that coworker follows him to a point and feels the urge to keep going and is rightfully scared of it and turns and runs. I mean, the, the book describes him, you know, all but like shrieking as he flees, like something he realizes something terrible is happening, mm-hmm. which is interesting because as powerful as that draw is, there is the capacity to turn away from it, Yeah, which is a nice parallel mm-hmm. to but anyway, yeah, that guy's not in the movie. In the remake... Oh, where do we start? So Ellie dies, not Gage. We've yep. established that. Uh, she's around for longer with her uh, wonky eyes and uh, ominous babbling about whether or not she's dead. Another not-so-great child performance. And she dances. She dances crazy. Yeah, starts throwing stuff around. Covered in mud. She puts the dress she was buried in back on. None of it really works. No. But then um, Rachel comes home and Ellie kills Rachel and brings Rachel to the pet cemetery. And then she comes back. Right. So Ellie Ellie makes her own monster family yes. very quickly. And then she, they together they kill Lewis and then they bring him to the pet cemetery. And then he comes back right. and then Gage is left alone in the parked car. And it, it basically alludes to the fact that they're going to bring him to the pet cemetery and make a monster family. It's just dumb. It's really dumb. The original movie, he takes Rachel to the pet cemetery and then he's waiting at home in the kitchen by himself. And then dead zombie Rachel comes in. She says something like darling. She or... looks gross. She's yeah. all zombified and they start making out and then she stabs him, right? Does that happen in the book? No. Okay, you're talking about the movie. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. It's the, the first movie. Yeah, yeah. In the movie, she's disgusting. She's got like- It like... looks cool. It's a great- Oh, yeah. There's all, all sorts of like brain fluid, just like water falling out of the hole in her head. Yeah. That uh, visual and the aforementioned ankle cutting scene is pretty great too. Yeah. When he kills Judd, it, it looks pretty cool. It's pretty gnarly. It's yeah. that kind of like really gross 80s. Practical effect. Practical yeah. effect. That's pretty awesome. I don't remember Judd's death in the new one. I think it's just, I think that's part of the problem with the new one. Is well, it's it's, just, it's, nothing sticks. Yeah. Uh, it's similar. He's on his stairs. And oh, she, but doesn't she, it do another fake out thing? Like it's like, this is the scene you remember from the original he, movie. He walks into a room that looks exactly like the room where Gage cuts his Achilles in the first movie. There's nothing in there. He even like violently like shoves the bed out of the way and there's nobody under it. And then he's walking down the stairs and that's when Ellie like sticks her arm through the banister and cuts yeah. his, you know, th- again, that's remaking the adaptation because in the book, Gage just kind of like jumps on him and like, you know, stabs him through the hand because he's clearly trying to defend himself. They don't have that. That Achilles cutting was an invention for the first movie. And the remake is just shamelessly kind of echoing those beats and expectations with these little twists that feel like uh, certainly don't feel as clever as they think they were. What's so great about the ending of the book is like, as we've talked about, there's an inevitability to this tragic ending. But it also kind of, it's kind of like, you know, this, it's just not going to get better. 
and it kind of leaves you on that note of just like this is this is a tragedy it's kind of nice it doesn't have to like rub your face in it or anything it doesn't have to get gory at the very very end it's just kind of which is i thought was interesting for stephen king it's one of from what i hear one of his better endings at least as far as the books go i mean let's kind of uh, i guess talk about the reception of all three maybe yeah yeah let's do that i mean uh i think the book is now considered one of his best i think a lot of critics consider it to be in top tier of his his books yeah i know he does too the original movie has a pretty decent cult following. Yeah, which I understand but don't condone. <laughs> I just, <laughs> you know, I think as, uh, especially when you get into horror um, and horror fans, they definitely have a tendency to be uh, much more forgiving of garbage. This is not to sound pretentious. It's not It's not a good movie. I, 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 I wanted to also kind of talk about the other movie, horror movies of 1989. Okay. To give you kind of a perspective of maybe why people look back on this movie fondly. Sure. Nightmare on Elm Street 5 came out that Oof. year. Which Is that... Um... The Dream Child. Oh, The Dream Child. Yeah. That one's awful. Uh, Shocker came out that year, which is a Wes Craven movie, which also has a cult following. Halloween 5, which is might be the nadir of this series. That's the revenge of Michael Myers. Friday the 13th Part 7, which is Jason Takes Manhattan, which is just garbage. Uh, There's just a lot of terrible... Like, the big thing for the 80s was they just doubled down on a lot of uh, slasher movies once they saw that they were successful and cheap. Compared to a lot of these movies, (laughs) Pet Cemetery is one of the better horror movies from 1989. Yeah, but I I imagine that each of those movies has a very dedicated and probably larger than it should be fan following. Sure. I think the thing with horror fans uh, is that they will readily admit that what they're watching is trash. I think when you're watching, especially the later Jason movies or Freddy movies, that you're rooting for the bad guy. You don't care about the heroes. You you just want to see some violence. You want to see some TNA. The human characters are just fodder. It becomes, yeah. each sequel seems to be a challenge to to up the ante over sure. the last one. I also think there's a nostalgia thing in there. A lot of the critics that I've read for the 1989 version seem to have grown up with it. Like it was a, it's something that they were scared of when they were young. And I think it could be very frightening for someone who's really young. And I think that informs their their kind of, their admiration for it. No, I get that. And I don't for I don't me, want to sound like an asshole. I just uh, sure. like watching I, it now for the first time, I just I couldn't enjoy it. And sure. I and I appreciate the gory stuff when we got to it. Yeah. Cuz I uh, you know, I like a good monster sure. effect as much as anybody, but uh, yeah, there's just for me there's nothing to hang my hat on I in think between those scenes. For me, I I don't think it works. Uh, I think we talked about that enough of what we think didn't work about it but seeing the new one made me appreciate it more because i think it it's just it has some filmmaking chops whereas the new one feels kind of like a lot of what i dislike about modern horror which is this tone that's a little self-serious really underlit really dark a lot of handheld Mm. not a lot of thought put behind the series of images and how they're cut together and how it's edited that stuff just rubs me the wrong way i thought the first one was overlit 
I mean, it's it's it for, very bright. Not necessarily. That's for its time, and it uses deep focus pretty well too. Uh, not many movies. That's the thing is like the differences between cameras from then and now, and we're using a lot of digital now, and they can handle low light a lot differently than movies in the eighties could. But you know, to com- comparatively, if we look at horror movies from last year, because this is, year is too young to really get a sense of like how Pet Cemetery 2019 stacks up to this year. But last year it had to compete with Hereditary, the Halloween Lega sequel, A Quiet Place, the Suspiria remake, Mandy, and just those alone. And I don't love all those. I think some of them are don't work for me necessarily, but they're all way, way more interesting to think about and talk about than the new Pet Cemetery is. Was it last year or was it in 2017? That was 2017. I mean, in general, it seems like adaptations of Stephen King's horror have been sort of having a, a bit of a renaissance. I mean, it was very well received. I enjoyed it. Um, I think okay. it, there were some unfortunate... Um, I think, again, that's very surfacy. And I think the biggest problem with the new one is that it eliminates one of the most interesting conceits of the book is that it bounces back and forth between the kids when they're young and when they're adults. And those things really inform each other in the book. And when you eliminate that, you're sort of eliminating the point of a lot of it. It's just like a a coming of age story with a scary clown. It's not bad. It's handsome. Uh, It looks nice. I yeah. guess. Um, I enjoyed Gerald, Jerry's Game. Gerald's yeah. Game. Which one was the Pixar short? And which one is the Stephen King movie? Gerald's Game is the Pixar is short. Is the one about the, 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 the kinky sex gone wrong, as opposed to the one about the old man adorably playing chess against himself. Gerald's Game is the Stephen King adaptation. Right. Yeah, that's a solid uh, adaptation by mm-hmm. Mike Flanagan, who yeah. did that recent House on Haunted Hill. Is that what it's The one on Netflix? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, haven't, I haven't seen that yet. Is that what it's called? The Haunting of Hill House? Yes. Yeah. That's also based on a book. Are there any adaptations that you like from Stephen King? Uh, It's hard for me to say. Uh, Aside from this one, I think I can really only point to Stand By Me and Shawshank to be able to compare them. Oh. Uh, And even then- uh, But on their own. Oh, on their own. I mean, Carrie's awesome. Yeah, I love Carrie. I love The Shining. Yeah. But Uh, you know, that's so so much a, a Kubrick movie first, you know? But we talked about like- the original Pet Cemetery adaptation is pretty faithful and it doesn't work. Uh, the remake tries to do its own thing and it doesn't work. I think there's this kind of uh, line of thinking that says like in order for an adaptation to be good, it has to be faithful. And that's what Stephen King feels about the original Shining. He, he's, he, won't, he still talks about it to this day. Uh, but I don't think that's true. And I think that Shining is a good example of it needs to be its own thing. Movies have different beats and it has a different language. So uh, I, I think it, it's smart to use that as a your the adaptation as or the source material as, uh, as a template or a launching off point uh, and then to, to be its own thing. Yeah, I mean, especially something where so much of the the emotion is, I mean, it's all it's all internal stuff or a lot of it is. And that's why, you know, I, I mentioned the um, the Hulu adaptation of 11, 22, 63, mm-hmm. maybe something longer. You know, maybe this needed five hours. I don't know. Or maybe not. I mean, maybe Pet Cemetery just needs to be a monster movie. I don't know. Oh, I also like The Dead Zone, the Cronenberg. Oh, yeah, that's a good with one. With Christopher Walken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really good. 
He has uh, so about many. murdering cars has he made <laughs> or been involved oh, with? Uh, Christine is great. Christine. It's a John Carpenter movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's Maximum Overdrive, which he did. He, he direct. He wrote and directed it. Yeah, yeah. and I think that that's not it. based off of one of his stories. I think it's just specifically a movie. Right? Just straight. Uncut. Creep Show is great too, but that's him kind of loosely adapting EC Comics, and he he wrote it, um, and he stars in it too. He he's in one of the segments. Oh, and he's the he's the Reverend who buries yeah. uh, who presides over oh, the funeral. And that's the Pet other Cemetery. thing. George Romero was originally supposed to direct Pet Cemetery. So this is originally supposed to have George Romero directing and Bruce Campbell playing Lewis. Yeah. God damn it. Yeah. Eh. What are you gonna do? Nah. Uh, he did Monkey Shines instead, which is which is fun. Yeah, it's decent. Yeah. If someone enjoyed Pet Cemetery, what would you recommend the next step be? I have two recommendations for films based on this whole experience. Uh, I think well, you already mentioned one. I think Hereditary does a better job of dealing with grief and death in a family than the Pet Cemetery movies do. I don't want to get into what people do and don't like about that movie because it gets very spoilery very yeah. quick and it's still recent I'm, enough. I like it, but I'm on the fence. That movie stuck with me yeah. and I, I really came to, to dig it more. I also, it was a fun experience to watch because uh, my wife Sandra wanted nothing to do with it. So I watched it in my office on my computer by myself with my headphones on and that movie has some amazing, sound you know, horrifying sound design to it. That's like... <clears throat> the antithesis of my experience, which was in a movie theater with not too many people, but a group of people that were up in the corner and they brought their little kid who should not be seeing this no. movie. And she was crying for a lot of it. And they were talking like, at, you know, like normal volume, like they were having conversations. And then this someone in front of me got up and finally like said, told these people like, hey, like they're they, they went and got the concession and said or manager and said like hey these people are talking too much so they came in and they they confronted them and told them if you continue you're gonna have to leave yeah if you can't traumatize your child in silence you're gonna have to leave yeah i mean oh, that's yeah. so fucked up they shouldn't have been there i will say even though i'm not crazy about the movie i think it has probably the best performance of of 2018 and that's tony collette yeah and she's just otherworldly so good uh the other one would be an american werewolf in london oh, love american yeah werewolf in london. um I, you know that's one i i don't think i like as much as the people who love it do but it does the gross corpse jiminy cricket better than pet cemetery does and that whole that transformation scene is fucking awesome it's so good so good I think what's great about American Werewolf in London is it's so good with balancing its tone from being like almost like a comedy to to this really gnarly, grisly horror movie. Right. Where I don't think the original Pet Cemetery knows exactly where it falls in the side of camp or straight out horror. Yeah. Uh, Amer- I think that's uh, performance, unfortunately. Werewolf knows exactly yeah. what kind of movie it is. Yeah. So I have three recommendations. Hot damn. Uh, the first is Death Dream from 1974, and this is by Bob Clark. Okay. He's kind of known for A Christmas Story, but he did- And Porky's. He did Porky's? Yeah. <laughs> Shit. Well, before he gave us Porky's, <laughs> he directed two of the greatest horror movies of all time, and that's Death Dream and- um, Black Christmas. Black Christmas. But Death Dream is essentially about this um, war veteran who comes home and he has changed. Uh, it's another kind of like, is he dead? Is he evil? A, a metaphor for POWs and how war has affected people and all that stuff. It's really 
dark and depressing and it's really great. The next is an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And this is super spoilery, so if you've never seen Buffy, you're going to just skip ahead. Like, She's a vampire slayer? She's a vampire slayer. Gasp. Season five, uh, episode 16 is called The Body. Um, and in it, Buffy's mom dies. Oh, yeah. Now, that's not the episode I'm recommending. Okay. Uh, although that is an amazing episode. The follow-up episode, episode 17, is called Forever. And in it, Buffy's sister Dawn gets a hold of some books uh, on witchcraft, and she tries to bring her mother back to life. And it has a great ending where you're not sure if her mom comes back or not. So definitely check that out. And the third one, and we really didn't talk about this, but a lot of Pet Cemetery is sort of based off of that kind of monkey's paw story. You know, be careful what you wish for. So I wanted to recommend season three, episode seven of The Simpsons, Treehouse of Horror 2. Uh, Treehouse of Horror episodes are um, usually three short stories. Yeah, horror anthologies. Horror anthologies. And the first one is uh, Monkey's Paw. paw. A monkey's Paw. Monkey's Paw. Uh, monkey's Paw. Monkey's Paw. A Monkey's Paw story uh, where they literally get a monkey's paw and make wishes. And all the kids kind of make these wishes. And Lisa wishes for world peace and aliens come and take over. <laughs> uh, and then at the end, Homer wishes for a turkey sandwich, and the turkey's dry. I wish for a turkey sandwich on rye bread with lettuce and mustard. And and I don't want any zombie turkeys. I don't want to turn into a turkey myself, and I don't want any other weird surprises. You got it? Hey. Mm. Mm. Oh. Mm, not bad. Nice hot mustard. Good bread. Turkey's a little dry. The turkey's a little dry. Oh, bone oh, accursed thing! What demon from the depths of hell created me? So good. Yeah, really good. What are we going to talk about next time? Next time, we're going to be discussing some Silver Age Fantastic Four. Oh, man, I'm so excited. Yeah, so this is something uh, you're bringing to the table mm-hmm. to, to, to share with me for the first time. We're going to learn my origin story, something that's defined who I am. I'll talk about that a little bit more and my love of comics, where that came from. And we're going to talk about some of my favorites uh, with some Fantastic Four by Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. Nice. Looking forward to it. Yeah, it's going to be good. Cool, man. All right. See you then. Later. Thanks for listening to this week's What Did We Miss? If you want to know more about the episode, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at What Did We Miss for links to some of the clips, videos, and research we may have mentioned throughout the episode, plus previews of upcoming shows. Drop us a line and let us know what you think, especially if we're talking about one of your pop culture blind spots. 